Welcome to Cornerstone. If, uh, if you need a Bible this morning, there'll be some Bibles, uh, some people coming down with uh, Bibles in their hands. Uh, they'd be happy to get those into your hands. You're going to need them. Uh, we're going to be in uh, First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, excuse me, 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go and open up there. Uh, we're going to be, we're looking at uh, this book of Second Corinthians. We've been studying it now for the last few months. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, this area of conflict. That's kind of what we've been going through. Now, when we've been talking through conflict, one of the things that's, that's important to understand is, is, the, is, is kind of these, these three things. This is what we've tried to pull out of, of 2 Corinthians to kind of relay and kind of talk about. We've had different people share out of their lives, but the first one is this. I don't care who you are, every one of us in here, conflict is just absolutely unavoidable. If you think that conflict is unavoidable, let me be the first to tell you it's not. Nobody can avoid conflict. We're always going to run into it. It's just the consequences of living in a fallen world. Now, the reality of conflict, though, is is not only is it unavoidable, but conflict, whenever we engage in it, we have to understand that it demands that we know the actual problem. That's what Paul was doing. He spent, in fact, in it, you, you look and study First and Second Corinthians, it took him about two years to really be able to get to the problem. And I feel like so often we try to get to the problem overnight, missing the fact that sometimes just getting to the problem takes time. And once we finally do get to the problem, we have to know, and we talked about this, we have to know how do we take this on? Do we seek conflict? Do we avoid conflict? And so that's what we talked about that particular week. Well, last week we talked about the trajectory of conflict, which it must always move towards restoration. And the, the way that we discussed it was out of, out of uh, 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul says we aim for restoration. That's what we're after. We're after God doing a work in us in such a way that we become the men and the women that God intended us to be. So therefore, when I'm entering into conflict with my spouse, with my friends, with my kids, with whoever it might be, as we enter into it, the goal is not to win. Everybody hear me? The goal in conflict is not to win. The goal is always that Jesus Christ would be preeminent and we would be the people that God designed us to be. That's what restoration means. Now, let me, let me add a fourth that we're going to go to so we kind of understand where we're going today. If those are the three that we've worked up to now, here's the fourth one is that, and this is so counterintuitive, in order to engage conflict, we must engage it from a place of weakness, not strength. Now, that is completely counterintuitive to think that I'm going to engage conflict from a place of weakness versus strength. But I think this is what Paul is doing in this book of 2 Corinthians, and this is where we're going to go today as we kind of explore down this path. Now, let me catch you up to where we're going. In the preceding verses coming into chapter 12, Paul had been talking about kind of their pedigree. Uh, the, the, the super apostles, if you remember right, the ones that were the problem, they thought they had arrived. They thought they were the, the best thing since, since bread and butter. They, they came into this church and what they were beginning to do was is they were beginning to create conflict with Paul. And in the midst of this conflict, the way that they saw themselves winning was again from a place of strengths. They came in and they said, look at our pedigree. Look at who we are. We're, we're Jews. We, we are not only Jews, but we're learned Jews. We're sophists. We, we know how to communicate. We have phenomenal communication skills. Everything about them was making an argument from a place of strength. 
And you got to love what Paul does because Paul in chapter 11 comes in, he goes, all right, fine. Do you want to be foolish here? I'll play this game with you. You want to talk about Jewishness, tribe of Benjamin? I mean, he lays out the reality. He goes, I am far more. You want to talk about learning? I know far more. Do you want to talk about being, uh, being, uh, walking through difficulty, walking through oppression? I far more. He just, he comes into there. But then at the very end, if you look at the very end of chapter 11, he comes back to this area, though, of weakness. In fact, the very first thing he does, I think it's in verse 31 of chapter 11, he comes in and he makes sure that we understand all those things amount to nothing. And he brings back in this idea of weakness. Now, the reason I chose chapter 12 instead of chapter 11 is is that he's going to go after another place in which they thought they were all strong. They came in and they said, you wouldn't believe the experiences we've had. We've had crazy spiritual experiences. We've gone through things. We've seen things. We've watched, you know, fire come from heaven. We've watched all kinds of crazy things happen. That's where we're going to argue in this conflict. That gives us a position of strength to which Paul's going to come in and say, it doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your crazy spiritual experiences. Those are not what dictate whether or not you win or you don't win a conflict. He's going to say there's something different in this conflict that has to be engaged from a place of weakness. Now, you can almost sense, and look down in chapter 12, Look at verse one. You can almost just sense his hesitation in this, where he's, he's talking through all these different realities. He's going to come to his own spiritual experiences, and he's going to describe them now as this, he's going to use this word surpassing. Look down at verse one. You can almost sense, again, his, his almost reticence in this opening verse of chapter 12. Watch. All right, he says, basically, I must go on boasting. Okay, let's, let's, let's do this. If this is where you're going to come at it from, I'll come at it though there's nothing to be gained by it. Do everybody see that? There's nothing. Anytime we come at conflict from a place of power, strength, his point being there is nothing to come from it. Now watch what he's going to do here. He says, if you want to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord, I can go there with you. His whole point being, if you want to play this game, I'll play this game with you. But again, I love it in there. There's no point to it. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to pull out this reality. He could have gone for what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He could have gone to a different place in which all these experiences that the Apostle Paul had had. But it's almost like he doesn't want to play this game anymore in this conflict. And so he goes for the chief of all of them. And unsurprisingly, Paul's boast in this incredible revelation he's about to do is going to be this, this, this huge, gigantic reality. But he's going to connect it at the end again to weakness. Now look at verse two. He opens up and he gives this kind of bare bones description of kind of his, his personal catching up. It's the word is actually where we get our word rapture from into the third heaven, into paradise. Verse two, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Get a point here, he's trying to get his cross. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man must not or may not utter. Now, twice he does this in third person. Now, why? 
Because we know this is Paul, because in chapter or verse 7, he's going to come in and go, I'm the one that saw it. Why in the world is he going, you know, there's this dude that I know. Usually when people are doing that, they're about to pull a fast one on you. They're about to kind of fool you. They're trying to kind of sweep in and take advantage of you. But Paul, I think here, is moving what was a classic kind of way that they would argue back in the day from the lesser to the greater. He's saying to them, this experience that this guy that walked through, which happens to be me, is the lesser and to the point where I'm about ready to get to the greater. Now, again, he's laying out what's going on with them between them. Now, the very fact, if you look down in that text, if you kind of see that word to be caught up or that word rapture, that he talks about this is he's saying, I think, in essence, it's almost unimportant to my ministry. It's not the most important thing. We know that 16 years before this, it would have been about the early 40s. Paul would have been a guy that, that would have been in either Tarsus or he would have probably been in Antioch, maybe. He hadn't even gone on his first missionary journey at this particular point. But something happened in his life that God decided, I'm going to give you a vision of heaven that's going to be unique and powerful for you. But it's going to be one that Paul's going to talk about. I didn't, I, I didn't, or he's going to say to them, I didn't really talk about it ever. In fact, we would have never found out about this unless Paul needed it for this particular moment. He even says in there, he goes, I don't even know really what happened. I don't know if I was actually in my body when I went to this particular moment. I don't know if it was just something that I was caught up into heaven. All I know is that I was there. Now, where's there? Well, the third heaven, now just just go with me a little bit so we can kind of understand Hebrew thought on what the heavens were. The first heaven would be this place in which the birds fly, right? That's the, that's the first heavens. The second heavens would have been the place in which we see stars, in which we see planets. But then the third heaven was always known as this place in which God dwelled. That's where God was. Now, what he's saying here is, is that I was literally caught up, and we can even see that by this word paradise that's in there. I was caught up into this third heaven. In other words, I was in the very presence of God. I was there. I love this because in Luke 23, also in Revelation 2, paradise is always connected with God. Paradise is not a place, it's a person. And he says, that's where I was. I was there, I, I saw, in fact, the way that he, I think he was expressing, almost if you go back to chapter five, I looked around and I saw the Father standing in all of his glory and the Son and the Spirit. I saw people, you even go back to chapter five, verse eight, that were sitting there at home with the Lord, waiting to receive their new bodies in which now they would experience all of, crea- all of new creation with him. He said, that's where he, I was, but yet, verse four, look down there, I cannot be told. There's some things that cannot be told which may not be uttered, he said. Now, was it that somehow he couldn't say them? I don't think that was it. I think he was just saying these things were between God and I. They were given for my personal benefit, not to pass on. Now, let me just say this. If anybody ever runs into an experience like this, it's not to be bragged about It's actually something that God is doing in your life for you. Now, how often does it happen? I know of it very few times. In fact, in the Bible, we only see one other time besides Paul getting caught up into heaven. Now, the funny thing is every time you ever read about somebody going to heaven, the first thing you read about is a book deal, a movie, a seminar, the five ways you can get caught up into heaven just like me. What does Paul do? Quiet. Quiet. 
Paul was not about power. In this moment, he realized it was for him. It was something that, again, it only has ever taken place to John in the book of Revelation from what we can stand, understand in the New Testament. But I think this is what's so great. Now, why did God take him there? I was wrestling through this, and one of the guys that I came upon is a guy named John Calvin. You might have heard of him. Kind of an important guy from our history. But he wrote this. He said, this thing happened for Paul's own sake, for a man who had waiting for him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him to persevere undaunted. In other words, why did God take him there? Because he was about ready to walk a very, very difficult path. I think that's why Paul went there. Now, the interesting thing about having these types of experiences is, is we tend to weaponize them. We tend to use them to our advantage, to our benefit. Whenever we go into conflict, we tend to take things like this, what the super apostles have done, and we tend to go into it. So take, for example, have you ever heard the person when they come into conflict that instantly they go to the fact that I'm just older? Anybody? Okay, the only reason they do that in conflict, if it wasn't conflict, they would never tell you their age, Right? expertise. Well, you know who I am. I'm Todd. Godly man, vicar. I mean, you know, we just use these titles. We use expertise. We tend to use even the Bible at different times to manipulate people. We throw things at people out of scripture to begin to manipulate them for what we want. We come at them from a position of authority. We use things within our relationships like sex and affection. We hurt how others have hurt and pained us. We hurt others and their failings against us. We grab these things that have happened to us experientially and we have a tendency then to take them and to use them against other people in order to win the conflict. But yet Paul kept this one back and he never used it against them. In fact, even the only reason he's telling them this right now is so that he can tell them something so much greater than using things against people. So much of conflict has to do with setting myself up to win. It's why in the midst of conflict, we gossip. Why do we gossip? We're trying to amass for ourselves all the people that we can to be able to handle a particular situation. And so if I can just get these people on my side, then when we go into it, I have a greater strength to deal with it. Be damned if it has anything to do with the truth. Paul's like, this is how you're operating. This is not how I operate. That's not where I'm at. It's not about power. It's not about using things to my advantage. It's not about those particular things. There's something that is so much greater here. And I think Paul, from, from the evidence of the text, he certainly could have taken the story of his rapture to the, to the grave and nobody would have ever found out about it if it wasn't for this particular moment. But now, as he does kind of all throughout here, he says, fine, I'm gonna tell you about this and look at verse five. This is what he says about himself. He says, on behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf, I'll not boast except, and here's where he turns the corner, of my weaknesses. I'm not about power. I'm not about prestige. I'm not about all these things that the world uses to get things. That's not what I'm about. Look at what he says next. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, I have all those things, but I would refrain from it. Why, Paul? So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me 
or hears from me. Oops. It's huge. Let me just repeat that. Why, Paul? So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He said, I just want it real. I want it real. In the conflict that we have in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families, in our workplaces, all these different places, oftentimes we don't want reality. We just want to be right. And Paul says, that's not what I want. I want that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or he hears in me. It's what Chris preached about the very first week back in chapter 10 that we even started this out is that Paul didn't want authority in the church to be based upon experiences. He didn't want authority in the church to be based upon expertise. He didn't want authority to be based upon pedigree. He didn't want authority to be based upon anything else. In fact, you can just see from this that he sees in me and hears in me. What he's saying is that what I want to be really the mark of my life and what I want to be the mark of how we deal with conflict is the words that we say and the actions that we have, let's just be real. That's what he's getting at. Just be real. In fact, he won't let anybody assess him any other way. I think we have to understand that regardless of how great a personal claim is made to visions and ecstasies in our world, all these things of our, our pedigree, all these things of our expertise, all these things of our education, all these things that are out there, not that any one of them in and of themselves are wrong, they do not dictate inside of these moments who is right and who is wrong. He, Paul just says, let's be real. Let's not just put our best foot forward. In fact, Paul's about ready to say, in fact, I'm going to put actually my, one of my worst feet forward here in just a second. Here we go. Now, why from weakness? I was thinking about this this week. Why, Paul? Why from weakness? That doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would we come from a place of weakness? And up to this point, he's been kind of writing vaguely about what this whole rapture to paradise was, his perspective from this third person. But now as he switches to first person, man, he's about ready to tell him actually what the point of that story is. The point of the story actually has nothing to do with power and prestige and seeing these amazing things. In fact, he's gonna now talk to him that a humbling thorn was actually given to me in my flesh right after I saw it. That the point of this story is not these crazy things I saw, but the thorn in the flesh that God gave me. Now look at verse seven, watch this. So to keep me from being too elated, that word is just arrogant, by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, too proud. What? What? Here's what I want you to notice. His thorn came after his surpassingly great revelations. It wasn't before. It was something that happened to him in that moment. Now, everybody tries to say, well, what is that thorn in the flesh that he had? And some people believe it was the harassment from these super apostles or the Judaizers. And some people think that somehow it's this, this metaphor to poor eyesight. 
Some people think it has to do with headaches. Some people thought he had malaria. Some people thought that he had gallstones and gout and rheumatism and all these things that people have thought. And I love the fact that Paul never tells us what it is because it's supposed to stay vague. I think it's supposed to just stay out there because all of us in different ways throughout our lives experience a thorn in the flesh. But whatever the reality is, it was debilitating. And here's his point. It was humiliating. It was humiliating. It was something that caused him to not look good in front of everybody else. We know for the fact that that one of the things that Paul struggled through was not only his eyesight, but he had a very, he probably had a hunchback. That's what we learn from, from, uh, uh, from New Testament here, from church history. People talk about him having a hunchback. In other words, can you imagine today if I came up to preach at you as the hunchback of Notre Dame? Potentially, that was Paul. Whatever it was, it was humiliating in the eyes of the people. And the thorns' anonymity, I think, just lends itself to the fact we don't know what's going on here, but don't miss this fact in verse 7. God ordained it. He is not the author of sin. He's not the author of the fall. But our God allows this to happen to him for a very strategic reason because he knew Paul was arrogant. Think about that. Paul's saying, I'm going to put my worst foot forward here right now. I'm not going to put my best foot. We could totally go down this pedigree line. We could totally go down crazy spiritual experiences line. But I'm going to tell you the actual thing that happened off that was something to sustain me through all the realities God was about ready to call me to. But the reason now that I got of the thorn in the flesh, just to be honest with all of you, is, is that I believe that God gave it to him and he believed God gave it to him because if he didn't, he was going to be an arrogant man. So that's where I'm at. The truth is, this thorn was Satan's work, but God allowed it. No matter what comes into our lives, it is Satan's work as far as negative that way, but God ordains it. He allows it. He was determined in that particular way, I would say it was what it's supposed to be. And what's stunning here is these super apostles who worshiped health and wealth and prosperity and well-being, they would have looked at his affliction and saw it as such a, a terrible thing, a weakness. They would have seen it as something that didn't make him an apostle. They would have used it against him in this conflict. In fact, they probably did mock if it was a speech impediment. Some people believe at this particular juncture, it might have been a speech impediment. Whatever it was, they mocked him for it and said, then therefore he can't be an apostle. But Paul says, that's how the world does conflict. That's not how the church does conflict, because if they would have known anything, this thing that they're now mocking in me is actually something that God ordained so that I didn't become an arrogant man. It would have absolutely thrown these men under the bus. Paul was saying, I am living proof that the gospel can't be hindered by weakness. In fact, Paul is saying, the only way the gospel moves forward is in weakness. That's it. I don't think this suggests at all that Paul enjoyed or used his thorn in the flesh to his advantage. I don't think he thought, oh, afflict me, Lord, I like it. We can see this. Look at verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. God, remove this thing from me. If you've ever had a thorn before, you know kind of what Paul's talking about. My, my youngest wife, 
Yesterday, we were out in the yard and he got a thorn. It was almost perfect for today. And he comes in and he's like trying to show it to me, right? A two-year-old trying to explain to a 46-year-old what in the world is going on inside of my finger. And I'm looking at his finger and finally I realized a sticker, a thorn had got down in there. And I go, oh, buddy, daddy's gonna have to dig it out. Now, mommy would have said it, hey, you know, we'll get that thorn. But daddy said, dig it out because that's what we had to do. I took his little finger, used some clippers and some different things, but man, it took forever to get that thing out. But Paul's point is this thorn was not coming out. The Apostle Paul who had healed people, the Apostle Paul who had sent prayer cloths over the kingdom and people had come back to life, the Apostle Paul who did these incredible things couldn't even heal himself. And Paul is looking at those particular people and saying, I'm putting my worst foot forward I get in this particular moment. I'm putting it forward. Because reality is in seeing those things, the greater reality is that God had to do a work in me. He prayed, I think it would have been similar to the prayers of Jesus. I think this whole moment of three times praying, like out of Mark 14, where Jesus Christ even asked in that moment, God, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it pass from me. And then he would finish each time, what? Not my will, but yours be done. Oh, see, I don't get that. I begged God. How often have I heard or have I been the one begging God, God, would you do a work here? And little did we know that God had something that he was doing big in Paul's life. Paul had a father that loved him, that cared about him, that in this particular moment, he might have been hearing the word no from God. That's what he might have been hearing. But listen to me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's never no. It actually has something more to do with not the negative, but I've got something else for you that's better for you. Paul was begging, and yet God had a different plan. Look at verse 9. It came in the form of an explanation, and just listen to me. This particular verse is the high point of all of 2 Corinthians. You're about ready to read the apex of this entire letter in these next two little sections in verse 9. He said to me, now just listen to this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What? What? It should read, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in strength, Paul. That's what it should read. Why in the world does it read weakness? And at this summit, at this, this lofty peak when it's hit here, I think now the true proportion of Paul's entire argument that he's putting all throughout the entire book of 2 Corinthians, this whole conflict that's going on was a conflict between an understanding of weakness and of strength is that there was a group of people that thought that in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to be strong and I have to have it all together and I need to look good and I have to have everything in its right place. I have to have everything looking good on the outside, and yet Paul's saying, no, actually, those that are authentic followers of Jesus Christ are the weakest people on the planet because they know their desperation for God. 
You did not come to Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You did not come to Jesus Christ in strength. You came as a beggar begging God for forgiveness, and you encountered a father that granted that forgiveness. But we never leave a point of weakness. We as Christians are always weak, even in conflict. Can you imagine if today you had conflict and weakness? Can you imagine this week if you didn't go do conflict where you arranged your power scheme to be able to deal with the conflict? Can you imagine if you didn't throw around your weight? Can you imagine if you didn't throw around your expertise and your age? Can you imagine if you didn't use things against people like withholding sex and affection, like, like withholding love, like, like doing these weird things that we do to gain power? Can you imagine if you didn't do that, but instead you came like Paul did as a weak man in desperation upon God and you just came into this conflict realizing, God, unless you show up here, nothing is gonna happen. And so therefore I'm gonna come like you've told me to come in absolute weakness. That's how I'm going to come into conflict. This is the apex. If you've come to follow Jesus Christ because you think somehow you are strong, you're in the wrong place. The one thing we know about all of us that know Jesus is we are a bunch of former sinners that still battle sin every day and that are in constant need of the grace of Jesus. If you don't think you need the grace of Jesus, this probably isn't the place for you. And this is Paul. He talked about weakness in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. He talked about weakness in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He talked about weakness in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Everything was just pounding us all throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. Weakness, weakness, weakness. And even by the time he gets to 6, 4 through 6, he says, look, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in affliction, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right and the left through honor and dishonor through slander and praise we're treated as imposters yet are true and uh, as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold we live as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing everything we are weak every morning you wake up Every morning I wake up, we have to wake up in a position of weakness. That's what he's saying here. Now it brings us to this next part though, because we can't miss this. He says in the first one, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. But now look at this next part. Look what Paul says here. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He's like, do you want to know why I keep talking about my weaknesses? Let me tell you, here it is. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now that's a crazy statement that you gotta see in this. One is it's total enthusiasm. All the more gladly, he says, I would be happy to do this. He joyously boasts of it. He talks about this particular weakness. And why? 
Well, it's this, this power and weakness principle, this so that the power of Christ may rest on me is the cog of this. This is the most important part. This is the, the beautiful part of why do we enter into things in a position of weakness? And it comes from that little word, rest on me. Look down in your Bible or else look on the screen. Does everybody see that word rest upon me? That particular word in the vocabulary comes, it has a huge kind of understanding all throughout the entire Bible. When we see that word, it literally means to tabernacle with. That means in these moments, God, when we are weak, actually tabernacles with us. In the Old Testament, it was how God tabernacled with his people. It's how he was amongst them in Exodus 40. It's also seen in John 1.14 when it says the word became flesh and dwelt. The literal word is, is that he pitched his, his tent among us. So therefore, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when we, when we look at this verse, he's gonna take the same imagery and say, in your weakness, Jesus tabernacles with you. In your weakness in the midst of whatever it is, that is when Jesus is tabernacling with you. If you wanna go into conflict with Jesus not tabernacling with you, then go in in strength. If you wanna go in with Jesus Christ tabernacling with you, then I would say you better go in with weakness. That is the only way to enter. Every time you manipulate, every time you cajole, every time you try to create power for yourself, just listen to me, Jesus will not tabernacle there. He won't. But every time you enter into conflict with humility, every time, and I think here's the key word, you enter into that knowing that God, I can't do anything in this. I'm gonna throw myself wholeheartedly onto you and trust you. I'm not gonna try to work because this is one of the things I do. I'm not gonna try to think through all the different questions and thoughts and answers that I need to put into my head before I have the conflict. I'm gonna spend more time not worrying. I'm gonna spend more time praying, God, in the midst of this, I believe that in the most difficult conflict, if I go into this with humility, if I go into it with weakness, Jesus will tabernacle there with me. That is powerful. That is what he's saying here. In your pride, in your arrogance, God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Paul says, in this conflict, you may seem like you're winning. You may have all the pedigree. You may have all the experiences. You may look the right part. You may have the right health and the wealth and all the other things that you think that you do. But the one thing that marks those that enter this conflict, he's saying in the correct way, the ones that Jesus truly tabernacles with are the weak, no one else. That's huge. There's no value in doing anything else is his point. It's this posture of trust. Now watch this then, verse 10. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses. I read past that so many times. When's the last time you were just like, oh, I am so content with weakness? That's a powerful statement. I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships. I'm content with persecutions. I'm content with calamities. Why, Paul? For when I am weak, something happens. I'm actually 
strong, counterintuitive. Now this is huge in conflict. Because when I enter into that thing, so often I can feel so weak and I can feel so out of place and I can feel so much like I don't have everything together. I can feel all kinds of ways that I want to feel. But if I go in with a posture of trust, a posture of humility, a posture of realizing that God is going to have to do the work here of entering into that conflict and saying, God, it's not about me. God, it's just like Paul said. It's about these being real. God, if that's what it's really about, I'm just going to go into it trusting you wholeheartedly. I don't have to put all my ducks in a row. I don't have to try to come up with all the questions to every answer and the answer to every question. I don't have to come into this thing lying and manipulating, cajoling. I don't have to come into this thing coming in with my nuclear bomb weapon that's going to somehow end the conversation. I don't have to go in any other way other than humble because I know if I enter in in this position of weakness, Jesus will be there. That's awesome. Now, there's no value in hardships and dignities if it's not for, and here's the key word in verse 10, for the sake of Christ. That's why we do it. There's something bigger here. Let me give us some takeaways for this week, and next week we're going to get some people back up here, but let me just throw some of these takeaways for you, some of the stuff I've been wrestling through. This week, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to look at your conflict. Oh, by the way, if you need to take pictures, take pictures now. Um, get all those phones out, or if you're really smart, you can just memorize it. But look at your conflict this week. Here's the question I want you to ask. Do you tend to enter or avoid conflict from a position of strength, self-trust, or weakness, trust in God? All right, that's the question I want you to ask this week. How do you normally enter into conflict? I'm talking at work, uh, your family, your marriage, uh, your neighbors, uh, like I said last week, where Satan dwells in your sports teams, uh, whatever it is that it might be. How do you enter that conflict generally? Do you find yourself trying to enter from a position of strength? Do you try to manipulate, cajole, arrange for yourself people to be with you? How is it that you enter into that or do you enter in a place of weakness? Here's the next one. How do you tend to weaponize your experiences or conflict, for conflict? What do I mean by that? Oftentimes, one of the ways that we can weaponize against people is when they've hurt us in the past. One of the ways that you'll know that you don't go into it with a position of weakness is the way that you use things against people. So if you're somebody that uses things against people from their past, that is entering into this thing in a position of strength, not in weakness. Jesus will not tent anywhere near people that use people's pasts against them. If you use even like one of the things I found, uh, men and women, uh, love, affection, sex, if you use that against your partner in any kind of a way, Jesus will not be tenting in that. That's entering into conflict from a position of strength. If you have to use something like your age, your expertise, um, I've heard husbands say this before, you know what, just at the end of the day, you're supposed to submit to me. If you have to tell that to your wife, you've already lost. Because we're now throwing the Bible at somebody sometimes just to get them there. Do I, do I think the Bible teaches submission wholeheartedly? But we oftentimes weaponize it and use it against people. Number three, when conflict arises this week, Ask God for the ability to address the issue or issues from weakness. And what I mean by weakness 
is not all those other things I've said, but by just trusting him. Now, what I want to do is, is just in this last moment, I'm going to bring Billy and the, and the band up. But I, this is going to be something that we're just going to do today. Um, I don't do this very often, but I would like everybody to close their eyes, bow their head. I think somewhere in dealing with your conflict, you know that you oftentimes enter it in, a different, in different ways from a position of strength in your own power. Now, one of the things you could do is just say that it's there. You could identify it as what it is, is sin. And the Bible calls us and tells us, look, with sin, what we're supposed to do is confess our sin, to bring it before Jesus. That's why he died. Now, for some of you, you know that there's ways in which you've used that against people. I would even say this. If you've used that against people, go to them and ask for forgiveness. If you're a husband that throws around your your strength inside of the marriage and you, you kind of throw your weight around, go to your wife, to your children, begin to ask forgiveness for that. That's not being a shepherd. That's being a cowboy that's trying to round up the doggies. If you're a wife that's manipulated your husband in different ways, go to him and ask him for forgiveness. That's coming from a position of strength. If at work you're coming into those and you're constantly finding yourself trying to arrange yourself with other people to to gain power, to be able to deal with office circumstances, man, confess that to God. If you find yourself gossiping a lot, that's a form of it. Just in these moments, just wrestle with God. Have him search you. Maybe even as we're sitting here right now, you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how I can do this because I've been spent years and years and years of operating from a place of strength, not from a place of weakness. Well, one of the things you need to do is reach out for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And then I just finish with this. Ask God for the power to not only enter into conflict, but enter into life from a place of weakness, of dependence upon God. That's where Jesus tabernacles, when we're in dependence. And if you're not a believer here today, let me just say this to you with all heads bowed, eyes closed. I think you know deep in your heart that you are weak and you're desperate and you're in need. The Bible tells us over and over again that we, we have sinned against God, we have wronged him, we've created a mess in our lives, but let me just tell you this. Jesus Christ came to defeat those things. He came to rescue you, to save you from it. And the only thing today that's gonna keep you from in any way experiencing the grace of Jesus, Jesus tabernacling with you, of you truly knowing what it means to know and to understand no longer having conflict between God and you is for you to bend the knee today in weakness. And so if you've never bended that knee, today's the day. And to the rest of us at Cornerstone, Father, Would you do the work 
of teaching us what it means to be a church that operates from weakness. Teach us what it means to experience Jesus tabernacling with us in that weakness. And then, Father, would you teach us anew what it means to have power like we've never known because we are weak, but yet you are strong. Give us that grace in your precious name. Amen.